chapter 11 of Zechariah. Now, sometimes God takes and he sort of takes his scope and zeroes in and sometimes he pulls it back out. You, you guys ever see those programs where you're trying to map quest? I know they have one where you can, you know, expand outward, you know, and see the whole city of San Diego, for example. But you're trying to find a certain city and then you can bring it in right down to even your house if you want, your street. And sometimes in the Word, God pulls the scope back, if you would, and looks at earth in a big picture. And then sometimes he brings it in and hones it into a specific spot and then he brings it back out. And as you read, really, Zechariah, the whole chapter you have to read in one sitting to get the context and then to go back and to say, now, what does this mean? And in context, he is talking about the time of Jesus Christ and his ministry and the time right afterwards. We know that. Look at verse 13, for example. The Lord said to me, throw it into the potter, that princely price they set on me, and I took 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. That verse is quoted in Matthew uh, chapters 26, 27, referring to Judas and his betrayal of Jesus Christ for exactly 30 pieces of silver. And then after that, a potter's field was bought. And that's the context as we see within this chapter. Now the chapter starts out looking a little bit into the future. And we're going to see why, because of the rejection of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he starts off talking about uh, the destruction in a poetic term, looking at the destruction from the tree's point of view. And so he says, Open your doors, O Lebanon, the fire may devour your cedars. Well, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. And he is discussing here about in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman, came down, and he uh, began to destroy the countries, eventually destroyed Jerusalem as well. But he's starting in the north, heading towards the south. And here are these great trees that are being used for weapons of warfare. They're being cut down. They're being burned up. And then he also says, Well, oaks of Bashan, which is in Syria, for the thick forest has come down. So from Lebanon to Syria. And now there is the sound of welling shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is its ruins. The, talking about the overflowing, the, the Jordan River would overflow and flood, and then it would recede back, and those lands were very fertile, uh, and they did a lot of uh, growing things there, but also it was grass for the sheep. And uh, so Israel didn't have great trees necessarily to rejoice in, but they did have their beautiful plains, their meadows that they could rejoice in. And they're all gone now. They're destroyed. We looked last week, and once again in Luke chapter 19, it tells us there as Jesus went from the triumphal entry upon the donkey, he came in, and then he went and he began to weep over Israel. And Jesus says this, but now... They are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. The very same thing talking about in these first three verses here in Zechariah 11. And they'll level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. In Daniel chapter 9, he gave uh, the formula, if you would, to know the exact day that the Messiah would be there in Jerusalem. And they didn't know their day. And as a matter of fact, the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, rebuke the people for praising you. Those are the words that only the Messiah should hear. Uh, out of Psalms 118, and Jesus said, if they stopped, the rocks would start crying out. 
But they did not know their day. And because they did not know their day, they didn't understand prophecy. They weren't, their hearts weren't ready as John the Baptist came to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. They did not have their hearts ready. Not only would they miss out in the present upon the Messiah, but they would continue with their uh, proudful arrogance hearts against Rome and eventually that, that heart of not being submitted to seeing the humble servant who God really is. Not this boastful, arrogant, proud, haughty attitude, but Jesus came as a humble servant, and we as believers also become humble servants. In that heart of a humble servant, that would have kept them from being destroyed. But because they didn't receive the humble servant, the Messiah, and they themselves had a humble servant, therefore destruction would come upon them. And indeed it did. And now in verse 4, he's talking about comparing. Uh, it's, almost, it's as if Jesus are, is narrating it and talking about his time on the planet Earth. He does this in several places within the scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 50, he says, The Lord God has awakened me morning by morning to give my ear as a learner. It's Jesus describing as his pattern of life as the Father woke him up each morning on the planet. And there's many other places like that. But here he's looking into the future and he's talking about his relationship with the other leaders, particularly the spiritual leaders, and comparing himself to them and exactly what would play out from that. So in verse 4 he says, Thus says the Lord my God, Feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. You can see the, the disdain the Lord has towards that Pharisee system of his time. As a matter of fact, if you read Matthew 23, boy, he lays it on them thick. He says, you Pharisees, you scribes, you hypocrites, you're sons of hell, and those that you proselyte to follow your ways, you make them twice the sons of hell as yourself. You're so prideful, you make the phylacteries long. They, they were to leave their sleeves a dangling string, and at the bottom of their robe, they would leave a dangling string, and they would have something dangling between their eyes. But instead of just some little dangling string, they had these things 10 feet long, so people stepping on them and walking on them. And the idea was that outwardly, people would say, oh, look how spiritual they are. But Jesus said, inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. You're full of uh, sin and wickedness, and, and you're, you're absorbed in your own covetousness. But outwardly, they looked so spiritual to the people. But inwardly, they were very much sinners. And we see that their whole system was built to rip off the people. The way the Pharisees had it set up in the temple, people would bring their lamb, and it was supposed to be without blemish, without spot, in a reasonable fashion. And then if the very poor, the poorest of people could bring two turtle dove, which is about a sixteenth of a penny. So everybody could have something to sacrifice, even if you were poor. But the Pharisees would look at it. The priest said they would say, oh, you know, look at that little blemish. Sorry, this can't be used. But you can buy one of ours that's already been approved. They would go to buy it and they said, hold it. We can't use that Roman money. You got to go get temple money. And they would go get temple money and the exchange rate would be exorbitant. So they would rip them off on the exchange rate, well, this is temple money, it's God's money, so it should be worth a lot more, then they would get ripped off by an inflated price on the sheep, and it's possible the time they waited in line to exchange their money, waited in line to buy their sheep, they, could, they would buy their sheep back to help them out so they wouldn't have to take it home. It's possible that they would run their sheep around the outside of the wall into the crowd. It's possible the time they got their money and bought the sheep that they could end up buying their own sheep back. And it, it just grieved the Lord. The beginning of his ministry, he went and overturned the money-changing tables and 
whipped the people and ran them out and said, my house is not to be a house of a den of thieves, but it's to be a, a place of prayer. He did that on both sides of his ministry. I, I love it. My pastor, Chuck Smith, when we have our men's conferences and, and there they'll have book tables and music and everything, he sells everything at cost because he knows that guys' hearts are going to be stirred up there, you know, to be a better husband or to be a better dad. And, and they're going to say, well, if I wait to buy it at the bookstore, I might, you know, the moment might pass, so I better buy it now. And he knows the guys are going to buy them because the speakers have stirred them up. And he doesn't want to make a penny on that. However, there are others groups, and I'll leave them unnamed, they say, I know the guys' are going to, hearts are going to be stirred up, so we'll double the price of the merchandise. Because we know that we're going to be able to stir them up. They're going to buy it because they're going to say, I'm not going to wait till next week because that moment might pass. So I'm going to buy it now. Even though it's really expensive, I'm going to buy it anyway. And they take an advantage of these guys' hearts being stirred. And it's not right. There's nothing wrong with selling things at church. That's not the point. The point is, is that they're inflating the price to try to rip the people off. And that's not right. And here, this is what the Pharisees did. He said they, they didn't tend them. They ripped them off. They brought them down. They made themselves rich off the backs of the sheep. And in verse 6, he says, For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. For indeed, I will give every one into his neighbor's hand and to the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. And so Jesus here saying the same thing he said in Luke chapter 19 about how he would allow them to come because they did not want him, they rejected him to come, and, and their king, referring to the Roman government, Titus, would come and destroy them. I fed them, Jesus says in verse 7, the flock for slaughter, knowing that they would reject him and knowing the destruction would come, but I still fed them. In particular, the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one called beauty. The same word can also be the word grace. And the other called bonds, or same word can be unity. And I fed the flock. So here's a picture. Jesus in his ministry, in his time, he said he came with grace. And he came and he brought unity. And I, and I love that. It, it says that of Jesus. His beauty is his grace. It says in the Gospel of John chapter 1, And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of his fullness, it says in John 1, we all received grace Upon grace. He came. They didn't understand that. They only understood law. And those who break the law die. They came there and there was a man. They ripped off the roof and they lowered a guy uh, who was paralyzed because of venereal disease. He had, he had uh, gotten himself in an immoral lifestyle and now he's there sick and he can't walk. And Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees, oh, they start talking, who can forgive sins but God alone? I agree, it's true, but Jesus was God. And he said that you might know that what I said you can verify and what I said you can't verify is true. Because you say your sins are forgiven, how can you tell? But yet that you'll know that what I said is true, that, that which you can't verify, take up your bed and walk. And immediately he was healed and took up his bed and walked. Jesus sowed grace, not condemnation. There was another time a woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The Pharisees had set her up in this sadistic plan to try to put Jesus in a, in a quandary situation that, where he was doomed if he did and he was doomed if he didn't. 
We caught her in the act of adultery. There's many witnesses. What are you going to do? The law says we should stone her. And Jesus started writing in the dirt. Many believe he started writing the dirts of the sins of these guys themselves that were also worthy of death. And it says the oldest to the youngest, they left. Probably a hotel name and a number and a girl's name or, you know, something else. And boy, they all left. And Jesus says, where are your condemners? And he said, they've all left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so we know that salvation comes by grace. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves; It's a gift of God. God gives us salvation as a gift. We can't earn it. We'll never be good enough to be worthy of it. But he gives it to us out of his love, of his heart, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a cross. The Bible says the soul that shall that sins shall die. Jesus never sinned. Oh, how is it he could die? In reality, he could have hung on that cross for a million years. Even though all the blood was out of his body, and even though he didn't drink, he still wouldn't have died. Why? Because he had never sinned. But he did die. How is that? Because the Bible says he took our sins upon him. That which killed Jesus was not the Jews, was not the Romans. It was you. Your sins, your lying, your cheating, your lust, that's what put Jesus to death. He died taking your sins, taking the wrath of God upon him. But the Bible says he conquered sin and he conquered death and he rose again. And now by grace we can come and say through the blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, please forgive me and there is a gift. You are forgiven. Now as a Christian, we aren't perfect. We stumble and fall. So the Bible says the Righteous fall seven times. Think about that a minute. The righteous fall. So often under the law, they say the righteous never fall. They're perfect. No, the Bible understands. Even those who want to obey God and love God and serve God, we still trip up on a regular basis. So the righteous fall seven times. And what does he do? He gets up seven times. Why? Because of the grace of God. The Bible says where our sin abounds, what? His grace much more abounds. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he will continue to be faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we know of that grace that causes us to get up time and time again. Look over, if you would, to Hebrews. There in chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Looking there at verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself also suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus became in human flesh. Why did he live for those years? So he could be tempted in every way we had been tempted. So now he can have mercy and grace and pity upon us. Look in Hebrews chapter 4 there, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, or so seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So when we sin, we don't have a judge with a scrawl on his face and a big hammer can't wait to say, ha ha, I got you. Now you're caught, condemn you. We have a loving father with his arms open saying, come up here and sit on my lap with that owie and I'll, put a, I'll kiss it for you and put a band-aid on it. That's why we get back up. That's why we keep walking. Because we have a God of grace. On the other hand, we have a God who demands unity. He demands unity with his spirit. And he demands unity with one another. Look, if you would, over to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4. So on one hand, there's grace. In the other hand, in the other staff, there's unity. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Listen to verse 3 now. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God wants you to have a unity with Him in your spirit. Look on, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now remember, he's writing to Christians who are not in that unity with the Spirit, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, being past filling, they've seared their conscience, they no longer sense the grieving of the Spirit, have given themselves over to lewdness. That word lewdness is license. It's okay for me to do this, even though it's lust, even though it's stealing, even though it's murder or anger. It's okay for me to cross that line because, and then you give your lame excuses. They gave themselves a license to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. Skip down to chapter 5 of Ephesians. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. I don't think there's anything cuter than seeing some little four-year-old boy trying to stand like dad. You know, he's got his pants like dad and his shirt like dad. He's got his hair comb like dad. And there's dad talking to somebody with his hand in his pocket and his thumb out. And the little boy puts his whole hand in his pocket and he looks at it and studies that hand and realizes, oh, his thumb's out. And so he's reaching over there, pulling his thumb out to get it just right, you know. It's, it's cute. And that's what he's saying. That's the kind of heart we should have towards our Lord. To want to be that cute little boy imitating our Heavenly Father. Uh, dear children, and he says in verse 2, to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us in offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. It's not fitting for us saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For to this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man, who's an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. The Bible makes it clear that we need to have that unity in the Spirit. Where we're not acting like we did when we were in the world, that we're not getting caught up in the 
whether it's the coarse jesting or the filthy language or the acting like the world, that we're to sanctify, set ourselves apart so we're, we have that walk with God. We have that intimacy with God. And God wants that unity not to be broken. So on one hand, somebody could say, grace, it's all about grace. There's only grace. And where my sin abounds, grace abounds more, so let me go sin. The Bible talks about that in Peter. He says there's some who teach grace that way, who say, have grace because you can sin all you want because God will forgive you. And he says that's a warped teaching by those who are warped and are not in love with God. Those who don't have a relationship with God. Those who really understand grace say, I never want to sin again. Those who understand grace say, I want to walk in an obedient life because I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus, he always did the things that pleased God. That's the way I want to walk. So on the other hand is, is the Spirit of God himself helping us to walk in that obedient life. Look to Romans chapter 8 if you would. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And starting there in verse 5. It says there, Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, at war with God. For it's not subject, it's submitted to the law or the principles of God. In this context, not talking about the Old Testament law, it's talking about principles, the ways of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, well, he's not his. If God's Spirit really lives in you, you can't continue being at war against God. Because God lives in you. You can't continue a life in the flesh because God lives in you. Look at verse 13 now of Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Back to the Old Testament law mentality but you receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. The spirit, of himself bears, the spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are indeed children of God. And so on the one hand, grace. On the other, unity. Unity with the spirit. And, and God's spirit lives in you now. You don't have to live a life after the flesh. And a matter of fact, I know when I live after the flesh, I start taking those steps or even those thoughts. I get grieved in my heart. I just get so grieved saying, no, don't talk that way, don't act that way, or don't go that direction. And sometimes I just say, I'm going to do it anyway, and I start shutting up that still small voice in my heart. And usually I don't get something horrible happen. Usually the blessing comes. Because the loving kindness and tender mercies of God lead us to repentance. God shows me how good he is and how wonderful he's been to me. And that's what breaks me and causes me to repent. But sometimes 
people harden their hearts. They keep going and going and going, and they cross those lines. And all of a sudden, not only do they harden their hearts, but they, they sear their conscience. And now the Holy Spirit is grieved, but they can't sense it. Past filling. Working all uncleanness with licentiousness. We've not learned Christ in that way. His grace is there. I am confident that if I blow it tomorrow, God's grace is there. If I sin, he's going to forgive me. He's going to be faithful to forgive me. But on the other hand, the Spirit of God lives in me, and it causes me to want to love God. It causes me to just want to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, I love you so much. I want to please you. I want to serve you. I want to do your will. So Jesus came teaching that. He came and showed us his grace, but he also told us that we are the light of the world, that we're not to become unlight. We're the salt of the world. We're not to become unsalty that we are to continue to walk in obedience with him. And in thus, we have the blessings of a life with God. But in verse 8, back in Zechariah chapter 11, and as we walk in light as he is in light, then we have that fellowship with one another. We have that unity with one another when we walk in that obedience with God. But in verse 8 here of Zechariah 11, he says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month, my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now, talking about shepherds, some say this is talking about the roles of prophet, kings, and priests. But when I look at what Jesus says, like in Matthew 23, he says, Well, you Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites. Indeed, the religious system was broken down into three groups. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and you had the Herodians. And here I think he's talking about those religious leaders are to take the three groups that Jesus had, scribes, Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites. And he's saying here that your religious ways of oppressing the people are going to end. And indeed in 70 AD when Titus came in and destroyed, and, and destroyed the temple as well as the whole city, that whole system was abolished and gone, and it's been gone until this very present day. There is still no temple in Jerusalem. There is still no priesthood. There is still no uh, system in which there's all kinds of the, the Jews that went throughout the world. They all have their little form of Judaism. And there's literally hundreds of them. All kinds of Orthodox and Hasidic Jews and liberal Jews. And, and they all uh, disagree with one another exactly what the law meant. Because if you look at the law, it can't be fulfilled unless you have a temple unless you have the Ark of the Covenant, unless you have the ashes of the red heifer, unless you have the, the menorah and the altar to do sacrifices and priests that can prove their lineage as a priest, basically the system's bankrupt and can never be rebuilt. It will be rebuilt under the Antichrist, but it'll be a false system that is built back. But then he goes on to say in verse 9, Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. So Jesus left the Jewish system. And he went into the Gentiles. It tells us in Romans that those that did not seek him, they found him. But those who sought him, according to the law, that the stone that came was a stumbling stone to them. So the Gentiles, the door was open, open to them. And now those that want their religious system, Jesus says, religious people, they bite and devour one another. That they don't build up one another. They bite and devour one another. But also those who are in sin, who want to continue their life in sin, are going to do that. 
In John 3, Jesus says they don't come into the light. Why? Because they don't want their deeds exposed because they love the darkness rather than the light. Thus, they're already condemned. They don't have to wait till the day of judgment. They're condemned right this very second. If you are living a life after your flesh, you are dead while you live. And the religious people who say, well, God will accept my religious ways. God will accept my religion because I'm sincere about it. So you have guys, and I've had guys literally tell me, I believe my higher power is a doorknob. And I'm very sincere about this, and God will receive me because I'm truly, sincerely worshiping the doorknob. God will receive that. Well, you know what? All the other religions of the world are as ridiculous before God as worshiping a doorknob. Even though they may be intricate and large, the Hinduism or Buddhism or the Muslim religion, they're bankrupt, all of them. The Bible makes it clear there is one way unto salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven which will be received by God and which men can be saved. God sent his only begotten son, and Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, let this pass. There is no other way. There was no other way that man could be saved. That's why God had to come in human flesh, live the perfect life, be the perfect lamb of God, without blemish, without spot, and die a horrible, gruesome, torturous death to take your sins upon him. There is no other way that leads to life. And Jesus said those who have the religious system are going to perish in it. Those who are living a life after the flesh are going to perish in it. And then he does describe exactly the, the siege that was put by Titus. They did indeed eat one another's flesh in that siege. And in verse 10, he says, Now I took my staff, beauty, or that staff of grace, and I cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I made with all the peoples. So they were not willing to receive the grace of God. They wanted their law. They wanted their Mosaic law. They wanted Jesus to accompany that law. Jesus is a special addition to the Jewish system. And Jesus broke it and he said no. Look over to Galatians chapter 5 if you would. In Galatians chapter 5. This is the church. They were a Christian church. Many of them Gentiles, but Judaizers came down who claimed to be Christians, but told them, hey, righteousness is maintained. Yeah, you receive the gift of salvation by Jesus, but righteousness is maintained by keeping a law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law of Moses. And Paul wrote a letter saying, absolutely not. And here, notice in Galatians 5, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again into a yoke of bondage, referring to going back to the law. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if any of you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify, like I'm in the court of law here, I'm testifying again to every man who becomes, uncirc to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Can a person keep all 613 laws of the Old Testament perfectly? Impossible. In James, it tells us if you break one of the laws, you've broken the whole law. Just like if you were out here on the freeway, you were driving too fast, and the police officer said, I'm going to give you a ticket, and you say, hold it. Look at all the laws there are in San Diego. I didn't rob a bank. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't rape anybody. I didn't steal anything. All I did is this one law. You can't, you can't give me a ticket until I've broken half of the laws. That's not true, is it? If you just break one of the laws, you are guilty. The whole law is against you from the breaking of that one law. 
In the same way with the Old Testament law, it says in Romans 3 very clearly that by the law, no one will be justified before God, but by the law, every mouth will be stopped and everybody come guilty before God. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But notice what Paul goes on to say there in Galatians 5. You, verse 4 now, this is radical, you have become estranged from Christ. If you're trying to go back to a religious life, you're divorcing yourself from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have, this is a radical statement, fallen from grace. It's by grace we're saved. It's by grace we make the first step. It's by grace we make the thousand step. It's by grace that we go into heaven. And if you have, he's saying, if you try to have law, then you can't have grace at the same time. You've fallen from grace and there is no hope outside of the grace and the mercy of God. He goes on to say, what do we as Christians look for? For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. How? By faith. When I stand before those pearly gates and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Because I have believed in the grace of Jesus Christ. I have believed in his love for me. I have believed in his blood to forgive my sins. I believe his mercies are new every morning. I believe that every time I confess my sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive my sin. I'm not worthy of heaven, but I know that heaven is mine because I have faith in the love and the forgiving power of Jesus Christ. That's what our hope is in. And in verse 6 he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. A continual walk with Jesus Christ. Daily I love him and daily he loves me. And that is where our hope is. And so that staff of beauty, a staff of grace was broken and thus the covenant with the Jews. So for a time, the natural branch, it tells us in Romans 11, is broken off. The Jewish branch is set aside. And right now the gospel is open to individual people of every nation and tongue of people who can come unto him personally. You can come to Jesus Christ. The Jews are still his chosen people, but he has broken them off. That natural branch has been broken off for a time and the wild olive branches, Gentiles, have been grafted in. And he goes on to say in verse 11, so it was broken on that day, thus the poor of the flock who are watching me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor, are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who truly understood their sinful condition and there was no hope through the law, they were looking on and they understood what was happening. And in verse 12, then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, and this is like Jesus narrating the part of Judas, if it's good, give me my wages and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Now notice in verse 13, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me, which is being sarcastic. In Exodus 21, uh, verse 32, it tells us there that that was the price of a slave. If a slave got injured while on the job for the master, he was to be released with 30 pieces of silver. The price, the minimum price of a slave. And so here he says, give me that princely price. Really, it was a price of a slave. And it's fitting because Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus, it says, find himself in the form of a man, became the slave of all men, even to the point of giving his life as a ransom. So I took that 30 pieces of silver and threw them so the Lord said, throw it to the potter, the princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. 
So here it prophesied ahead of time that the Lord would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. As you read Matthew 26 and 27, there they're sitting around the table and Jesus says, when are you going to betray me? And all these apostles said, Lord, is it I, is it I, is it I? They knew they were capable of anything. Finally, came to Judas and Judas said, Lord, is it me? And he said, it is as you say, go and do what you must do quickly. Judas evidently in his mind, you know, Jesus was going to be this conquering king. And when he saw him not becoming kingly, and then Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to be put to death. And it just, his concept of what Jesus was to be and what he was to do for him, he was going to be one of the top dogs in this world ruling kingdom. And, and when he realized Jesus was coming as a suffering servant, he got embittered. And he said, man, I put all my money on this one horse and I've lost it all. And he got angry, and so he went to the priest said, I know you want to arrest Jesus, have him put to death, and you need to do it in a private place. I can tell you a private place he'll be at. It'll cost you 30 pieces of silver. And so they arranged it. You'll be there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It'll be night. This is the time. I'll point out who he is by giving him a kiss. That was customary, that the student would give the teacher a kiss on each cheek. And that's the one. But afterwards, when they saw how brutal Jesus was being treated, he said that wasn't right. And he had remorse. He didn't repent, but he did have remorse. He was sorry he did it. He wasn't sorry in his heart that he had sinned against God. And the Bible says he took the 30 pieces of silver and said, take it back. And he threw it at them because they wouldn't take it. And they're, them being so spiritual, such hypocrites, said, oh, that's blood money. We can't put it in with the temple money because it's tainted. So they said, what shall we do with it? They said, let's buy a potter's field. Now in those days, when a person made pottery, they would take the leftover scraps or the broken pieces and they would throw it into a field, a junkyard. But the problem was, is that pottery, when it's put on the dirt, it poisons the dirt. After it's been a part of the dirt, nothing can grow there. It's dead. And so it becomes worthless ground. So they bought this for 30 pieces of silver, which is very cheap, and they made it for a burial ground for the John Doe's or the Jane Doe's, people who came through and died and nobody knew who they were. They would bury them there in that field. Now think about how fitting that is. Christ came, he was bought at the price of a slave. That's exactly what he said he was. What was bought? A dead field. And what was in that dead field? A place that the unknown nobodies would be buried. And what was it? A place of a bunch of broken pottery. That's us. It says in 1 Corinthians that God did not come and take the noble and the great of this world. He came and took the broken, the weak, the nobodies, the abased. And that's who he called unto himself. And who were we? Remember back in Jeremiah 18? God says, I am the potter and you're the clay. But so often the clay starts talking to the potter saying, hey, I don't, want, I don't like this. You're making me a plate. I want to be a cup. And, and they go on their own way. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's who we are. We're just a piece of dirt on this tiny little planet flying through space. But yet we say to the creator whose hand spans the universe, hey, let's take orders. Now, wise up here. Let me tell you how it's supposed to be. And so there we are, this cup that we thought we should be. And we go on about our life, doing what we want to do, and then we break our life into shattered pieces. And there we are, dead. There we are, insignificant nobody. And our life is dead. And there we come. And with the price of blood, they called it the field of blood because it had been, those pieces of silver had betrayed Jesus. And this field of blood 
Christ takes the broken pieces of our life and begins to put back that beautiful work of art he intended us to be and even greater. Through his, that filled of blood, that dead thing became alive through the working hand of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. Now I need to point out here that this prophecy is one of over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming. In other words, can you tell me somebody in history that was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Oh, you might. But was that money afterwards used to buy a field that was a junkyard for potters? And was that field then turned over to bury the dead of the unknown people? You start breaking it down like that, you know, and you realize it's impossible. In other words, if somebody said, next year there's going to be an earthquake in California, you'd say, well, you know, prophet. I mean, I could prophesy that. But then if they started adding to it, it'll be on September 1st at 2 o'clock. The epicenter will be the Coronado Hotel. And there's going to be three people killed. There's going to be 20 cars smashed. It's going to do $10 million in damage. It's going to, and they, every time they add a piece of information, it starts to get, wow, they're really going out farther and farther on that limb. Well, to give you an idea of how powerful it is. If somebody could have eight prophecies in a row, in other words, you say Jesus was born in Bethlehem of a virgin birth. He uh, moved to Egypt. Out of Egypt, he lived in Nazareth. Out of Nazareth, he started his ministry. And, and you could go right on down the list of the over 300 prophecies. If you just take eight of them, a scientist by the name of Peter Stonier, he wrote a book called Science Speaks. He thought, man, I want to help people understand how radical this is. Mathematically, eight prophecies in a row come out to 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Now you ask yourself, what would that be a picture of? And so he worked with it and he turned it in to the uh, Mathematical Association of America here and asked them to review it. But here's the word picture he came up with. For eight prophecies in a row, that would be like taking uh, the size of Texas and filling up the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. And on one of those silver dollars, you mark it with an X and you throw it somewhere in the state of Texas. And somebody comes up, walks around the state of Texas, and on their first try, they reach down into the pile of silver dollars and they pull out the one with an X, the very first try. That is 10 to the 17th power. That is the odds of eight prophecies coming in a row. Now, as we study the prophecies of the first coming of Jesus Christ, there's 61 major prophecies. And he thought, you know, let me come up and try to make a word picture with the number 60, 60 in a row. What would that be like? And the number was so huge, it couldn't be done. So he finally brought it down to 48 prophecies. He goes, I'm going to give you a picture. Now, there's over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, but if there's 48 of them came true, 48 prophecies in advance, what would that look like? Well, we need something far larger than Texas, and we need something far smaller than a silver dollar. So we need to take an electron, he said. Now, to give you an idea how small an electron is, if you could line up one electron next to the next one, next to the next electron, next to the next electron, and you were fast, you could do 250 of them a minute, line them right up to next to each other. And you lined up electrons next to each other for 19 million years. After 19 million years, you'd have one inch of electrons. 
250 a minute, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 19 million years, you'd finally have an inch. But we need something far bigger than an inch, far bigger than planet Earth, far bigger than our galaxy. Here's the thing we're going to throw the, fill the electrons up. If you were to take our Earth to the farthest known place in our universe, and you were to go that distance every minute for 11 million years, I say, keep running. Here's the string. You know, you go from our Earth to the farthest known point in our universe, and you're to go that distance every minute. Every minute you're able to go that far. And I, can't, I have you keep going for 11 million years. And then I say, stop! And then with that, we make a big cube out of it, okay? Out of that distance in, in three different ways. And now we're to fill up that giant cube with electrons. Just stack it in there. Just push them in there. Solid electrons inside that big giant cube or ball. And we spin it, you know. And the first time you reach in, you pull out the electron you have an exon. That is 10 to the 157th power. That's the same as 48 prophecies being fulfilled. But guys, I'd like to tell you, it was over 300 prophecies of Jesus Christ were fulfilled. Just looking at prophecy itself is enough to cause somebody to look at this Bible and realize this is the very fingerprint of God upon this planet. And it's to look at Jesus Christ and say there is no other than him that could be the Messiah. Well, picking back up here and finishing up Zechariah this morning. He goes on to say in verse 15, And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of the foolish... Oop, I skipped one. Verse 14. Then I cut into my other staff bonds, and I might break the bond brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And this is interesting because God said once they come back from Babylon, they would never be two countries again, but always one country. So that makes me think that he's making a point on their names. Judah meaning to the praise of God, and Israel being submitted unto God. And here he's saying, I'm going to break this other staff, and you, you've got to make a choice. Are you going to be a person who's self-willed like Judas, who is self-willed, who said, Jesus isn't what I wanted him to be, and therefore I'm going to betray him? There's a lot of people like that. You know, if God helps this situation, then he's really God. And then it doesn't turn out the way they want it to turn out, so I'm an atheist. God is who he is, and God's going to do his will. Jesus taught us when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But so often people have this picture of who God is and when he doesn't fulfill their thought of who God is, then they say he doesn't exist. It's, the burden is upon us to discover who God is, what he thinks, what his will is, and then to line ourselves up with his will. It's not God's position to find out who we are and to line himself up with our will. And that's when people get bitter towards God, when he's not being what they want him to be. He, they're not answering the prayers that they want him to answer. They're not making them, you know, rich and powerful and successful and the strongest man in the world. And everybody can look to me and say, whoa, you're so powerful. And then I'll say, the Lord helped me get here. As if that's God's will for every person's life. Paul said, I've been rich, I've been poor, in all things I've learned to be content. The Bible says God makes the rich and God makes the poor. Are you submitted to say, I'm going to live my life to the praise of God. I'm going to submit to him no matter what comes. 
whether I'm healthy or whether I'm sick, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, whether my life is smooth or very difficult, I'm submitting my life and I give my life to him. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul said, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, that I might be made conformed to the image of his death. Paul said, there's one thing I want of God, and that is that I might die to my own will, my own wants, my own desires, and that Christ might live through me. That's the only thing. I don't care about all the exterior earth stuff. It's going to come. It's going to go. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I want that heart of living my life to the praise of him. And I want my heart living to a submitted life. And there's a, a break that has to take place where you fall upon the rock and you submit yourself totally to him. Or you continue to live in your own self-will, destroying your own life. Well, then he goes on. He talks about this foolish shepherd and a worthless shepherd. Notice verse 15 to the end of the chapter. The Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those who are broken, nor feed those that feed those that still uh, are broken, nor feed those that are still stand, excuse me, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The sword shall be against his arm and against the right eye, and his arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Write these scriptures down and look them up as your homework. But in John 5:43, Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you reject me. But another is going to come in his own name, referring to his own nature, and him you will receive. Jesus was talking about the Antichrist. Jesus came as a humble, broken servant, not as the King of Kings. But the Antichrist is going to come as this great world leader, this great pompous guy speaking arrogantly. And the Jews are going to say, that's our Messiah. And write this down also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8-12. through 12. He says, when this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist is raised up, that God is going to help people believe in him. He's going to allow the delusion to come. Why? Because they would not receive the love of the truth. You see, guys, you are either going to be submitted unto God, or you're going to willingly submit yourself unto the Antichrist. You are either going to be delivered by God or you're going to be delivered into the hands of that lawless one, the Antichrist. And it goes on in Revelations 13 to tell us that he was wounded in the head mortally, but then he came back to life. At least it appeared that way. And here it tells us that his eye was put out, his right eye was blinded, and his arm was withered. It sounds like an assassination attempt. And somehow he was shot in the head and it blinded his right eye. It sounds like a paralyzed part of the right side of his body. And his arm was withered and his right eye was put out. Here's a prophecy again before it comes to pass. A prophecy is telling you there's a seven-year tribulation period coming. That there's going to be another shepherd that you will receive and he's going to mistreat the sheep. He's not going to love the sheep. He's going to be brutal to them. And then he's going to be injured himself. He's a foolish, worthless shepherd. But they're going to receive him. Why? Because they wouldn't receive the good shepherd. Because they didn't want to humble themselves and be lowly and meek like our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to follow Jesus means you also are a servant. means also you are broken. That means you're giving and serving and helping and loving and being kind like him. 
But on the other hand, the Antichrist is going to come in like the top CEO, man. He's going to be the dude, man. He's going to be rich and powerful and suave and debonair. And, and everybody's going to look at him and going, whoa. Jesus wasn't that way. It tells us that he was comely. He was sort of ugly. It tells us Isaiah 53. His appearance was such that it didn't draw people to him. So either you're going to receive the nature of Jesus Christ and you yourself will fall upon the rock and receive that humble shepherd or you will believe the delusion. Why? Because God's going to help you believe the delusion. Because you would not receive the love of the truth, you're going to receive the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And it goes on to say there in Revelation 13 that then he gives that mark of the beast, 666, and they worship the beast who has all kinds of signs and wonders. Let's bow our heads this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word here today. And we do ask in Jesus' precious holy name that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in the midst of us. They would hear your heart and hear your mind. Lord, you said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You told us to fall upon the rock and be broken, so that rock doesn't eventually fall on us and crush us to powder. Lord, we hear your word to us today in advance, saying how you were a good shepherd, but destruction is going to come. You were a good shepherd, but unto the slaughter of the people, because they wouldn't receive you. And we know we're in the last days. You said in these last days we would see it and we would know it and that we need to get our hearts right. And of all people, this chapter is for us. That either they're submitted to the servant of God, Jesus Christ, the true and living God, that nature that was broken and humble and willing to receive the nobodies, or we're going to be given over to a strong delusion to believe the opposite nature when he comes in his own nature, in his own ways, calling fire to heaven and doing all kinds of false miracles to cause people to believe that strong delusion. Lord, we want to be submitted to you today, to be ready. Here's the question this morning, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If the Lord were to come right now, are you ready for his coming? Are you 100% certain? He would say, welcome into my kingdom, you're a good and faithful servant. Or are you living your life after the flesh? If you're living for your own will, your own lust, your own desires, you are at war against God. You're not in right relationship, but today the Lord desires you to be in right relationship with Him. He loves you. That's why He's giving this message. And if you're here today saying, my life hasn't been submitted... Maybe this is your first time where you realize today God's grace and love and how salvation is a gift. And you say, I need that in my life. Great, come today. And some of you maybe have been Christians, but you, you've been stumbling, you've been falling, you've been living your life after the flesh, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe a few years, but you realize God's calling you today. The Bible says nobody can come unto me unless the Father draws him. And today you sense a spirit drawing you saying, this is your day to get revived, to get things right again. God's arms are open wide, but you have to humble yourself. Don't let Satan rip you off. Say, you can do it by yourself. You can do it later today. You can do it tonight. You can do it next week. You don't have to make a public confession today. Don't let Satan rip you off. Don't let the pride of your heart rip you off. If you're here today saying, I need to get my life right with the Lord, Brian, pray for me. Lift your hand right now. I want to pray for you. Just lift your hand up. That's me. Oh man, numbers of people, yes. 
number of you are lifting your hands right now. The Lord loves that humble heart. Lord, you see these hands lifted up. Touch them, heal them, Lord. Strengthen them. What we're going to do now with all those who lifted your hands, we're going to all stand up together and those who lifted your hands, I'd like you to come forward as you falling upon the rock. This is your humbling your heart before God. There's numbers of you that did and you were bold enough to lift your hand, but now be bold enough to make that stand. Say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm giving my life in totality to Christ today. Let's all stand together right now. And you who lifted your hands, make your way. Just stand right up here in front. God bless you. Come on up right now and just stand right here. Yes, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for touching these hearts so deeply, Lord. We thank you for the work that you've done here this morning. These numbers of people that have said, that's me. I can't keep living in my own way, my own flesh, my own desires. I'm destroying myself. I'm hurting others. I want my life today to be fully submitted into the will of God. Years ago when I made this same step, I had somebody help me pray, a prayer that I didn't know how to pray, and, but it yet expressed the attitude of my heart. And this morning I want to pray a prayer. and Let it express the attitude of your heart and repeat it after me. And let's all as a family this morning pray this prayer to make these here feel at home. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. And I come unto you because I know you love me. I know you sent your son for me to die upon that cross and to raise again from the dead that I might be forgiven. I give my life to you. Come into my heart. Be my Lord. Be my God. Give me the grace to follow you from this point forward and to obey you in entirety. In Jesus' name. And Lord, bless all those who have heard your word today and strengthen them in the knowledge of our Lord and our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Meet us tonight as we get back into the word and have communion. Meet us in the midweek services and meet us in the home Bible studies and glorify yourself in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said... Amen and amen.